Colossians chapter 2. Um, so we've been talking about this story that uh, Paul has been telling us is, it's the story of reality. Uh, everything else pales in comparison. I mean, we're talking about Jesus, and in him we have not just spiritual realities, but science. It, it is, <laughs> he is the creator of the universe. He is the one who holds it together, and he is the one in whom we find hope. And so we put our trust in Jesus. We put our faith in Jesus. As Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 17, the reality, however, is in Christ. He is the reality. Amen? Jesus is the reality. And so just a question for you as we start today, is that, is, is that true of you? Is that, is that your story? Jesus is my reality. Listen to the text today, continuing in chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and every authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him in faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Years ago, probably around 2003, I think David was three years old, Claudia was five or six years old, and it was a Thursday night because that was our date night back then, and so Thursday night, we went out on our date, left the kids with a good friend of ours who was their sitter for the evening, and I don't remember what we did on our date, probably watched a movie and ate at the Outback there in Rio, something like that, we did that a lot, but when we got home, uh, the babysitter said, I got to tell you what happened, and you know, as a parent, you're like, oh boy, you know, what happened, are the kids okay, and she said, this was truly remarkable. It was time for dinner, and so she got David in his little plastic high chair thing that was strapped to one of our seats there in the kitchen, and Claudia was in there, and, and she fixed chicken nuggets, which universally adored by children and adults alike. Amen. Chicken nuggets. Come on. So universally, she got that, and she got some little veggies on there and gave them their drinks and everything, and so they were sitting there, and, and David got very quiet, and she said, what's wrong, David? And she said, well, and David said, well, I need, I need ketchup. And so she said, well, we have ketchup. He said, yeah, we have ketchup. Three years old, he said, we have ketchup. And so she, he's strapped there in his chair. So she gets to the fridge, and she's looking through the fridge, doesn't see any ketchup on the door or in the shelves. And so she thinks, well, maybe there's a, a new bottle somewhere. So she starts looking through the cabinets. And after a couple minutes, she says, David, I'm sorry, I, I don't see any ketchup. And David, not angry, not yelling, not crying, he just said, I, I know we have ketchup. 
<laughs> I, I know it's there. So she went back for another round, looked in all the same places again. Uh, maybe I missed it. But there was no ketchup in the fridge. There was no ketchup in the cabinet. And David just, she said, just let out this sigh of exasperation, of frustration. <sighs> he just looked at her and with all the sincerity in his little three-year-old eyes became an orator, became William Jennings Bryan. He said, people need ketchup. <laughs> People need ketchup. By the way, this is just a footnote on the story. There was ketchup in the refrigerator, but there was this time, and I don't know if they did this in the States or not. It was a tragic time for the Heinz Corporation where they started trying to attract uh, more children ketchup lovers, so they started coloring the ketchups. I don't know. They did this for a while in Brazil, so you could buy orange ketchup or or purple ketchup, and I, I think we had some orange ketchup in the fridge, so her eye was just passing over that, you know, it looked like a bottle of mustard or jelly or something in there, but it wasn't ketchup, but it was, so we had ketchup. But even then, you know, David had this sense that there's something missing, something that people need, and, and he became a little evangelist there in that moment for ketchup, but But there is a sensation, right, that people have that something's missing. I mean, I've talked to people old and young, people in Brazil, people in the States, people all over, and how often have I heard that there's, there's just something missing in my life? Um, you know, I don't have enough is one of those common refrains. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough health. I don't have enough husband. I need a little more husband. I don't have enough wife. I don't have enough boyfriend. I don't have enough girlfriend. I don't have enough of, you know, fill in the blank. Or they don't feel like they've done enough. Maybe that's you. You know, X, Y, or Z. I really should have done more of that, and I think I would be fulfilled. I think my life would be where it's supposed to be. Or maybe you have this sense just even deeper that, I'm not enough. Maybe a mom or a dad told you that when you were growing up. Maybe a boss told you that or a friend told you that. Maybe you've just heard that from the culture. You're not enough. You're missing something. But I think there is a sense that there's a need that people feel. And what Paul does here in this text is he says, Jesus is enough. If you have Jesus, you've got enough. Essentially, people need Jesus is what Paul is saying. And so I actually put this on your outline this morning. When the world says you're not enough or you don't have enough or you haven't done enough, the Christian is able to look at the world and say, no, Jesus is enough. You know, Jesus is my enough. I have, according to Paul, fullness in Jesus. And so that's the gospel truth. People need Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. And he's talking to people who've already, in Colossia, who've already accepted Jesus. He's their Lord. He's their Savior. And he's telling them, know this. You have enough. 
You have fullness in Jesus. Don't believe the lies out there that you haven't done enough or that you aren't enough or that you need something that's lacking. He says you've got everything you need in Jesus. He is enough. He tells the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 4, he says, guys, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And thank Him for all He has done. Be grateful, right? Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that you can understand. Your, I mean, His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live, location, 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 as you live in Christ Jesus. I love that. And so there is a lie that I think feeds this sense of, I don't have enough. I'm not enough. I need a lie from the pit of hell that says, you're not enough. You don't have enough. You're missing out. If you are a believer in Jesus, then you have enough in Christ. You have more than enough. You don't have to, according to Paul, right? You don't have to worry about what? About anything. You can take everything to God, and you can, whatever your circumstances, rejoice and be grateful for what He has already done. I love that in Philippians 4. If if God never lifts a finger for you from here on out, you got enough. And you can celebrate that and live in that abundance. And Paul talks about the peace that your mind can't even understand. I mean, the peace that you have living in Christ. And so, this is the thing here. This is really the secret. Like, my fullness doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from what I do or accomplish or, or amass for myself. And so when people feel like they're lacking something, usually what they do is they start looking inside. You know, what, what's wrong in here? And Paul flips the script, and he says, when you're feeling like you don't have enough or you aren't enough, he points to Jesus. He says, look at Jesus. And he says in verses 9 and 10, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ who's the head over every power and authority. So spiritually speaking, in Christ, you have everything. (laughs) You have everything. And it can look like, I know this, it can look like he's not enough. Like, that sounds nice, but Jesus isn't enough. And, you know, when you're, we made this trip a few times when I was a kid, when you're driving out to Colorado and maybe headed west on I-70. For me, it was from Missouri. You're driving across, and then you get maybe 40 miles outside of Denver. You start to see the Rocky Mountains, and I'll tell you, they don't look all that impressive 40 miles on the east side of Denver. It's like, I kind of thought they'd be bigger. And then you get to Denver, and then you drive through going west, and boy, do they look big. It's all you can see. You are surrounded by the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains. And to you that feel like Jesus is not enough, you just need to get closer to Jesus. You need to get on up there closer. And I promise you'll see as you draw near to Jesus, 
He's big enough. He's strong enough. He's got enough love for you to experience this. Fullness in Jesus. And there's the spiritual reality at work here, isn't there? What our souls hunger for, your soul's not hungry for more stuff. Your soul's not hungry, really, for more accomplishment. Your soul is not hungry for whatever, insert the blank. Your soul is hungry for Jesus. Your soul is hungry for Jesus, and nothing can fill that void except Jesus. You can't pour enough drugs and alcohol into your life to fill that void. You can't pour enough one-night stands and empty relationships into your life to satisfy that hunger that your soul feels. You can't get enough raises, enough promotions, enough business deals done, enough whatever. Nothing can fill that void except Jesus. And so, if you get this down, you've, you've found the secret. I mean, you've found the secret that Jesus is enough for you. That your soul, that's ultimately what your soul hungers for, is the presence of Christ. I love this story. It's in Luke chapter 10, and it's about Mary. You know, Jesus had these close friends, Mary and her brother Lazarus and her older sister Martha. I mean, Jesus, when he was in town, when he was in Bethany, he would, he'd be hanging out at their house. And one day in Luke 10, unexpected visit, Jesus pops by. Some of the apostles are with him as well. And it's an interesting story, and you've probably heard it before, because um, Martha starts doing all sorts of, I think you could say, good things that you would do when a friend comes by, or you want to be a good host. I mean, she starts kind of cleaning things up, and she starts uh, getting to work on the meal that she's going to serve Jesus. And I mean, she wants to just blow his socks off with a great meal and everything. And so she's busy, busy, busy. And you find Mary, you remember this, right? Mary, <laughs> she's just getting near to Jesus while all this is going. She's, she's sitting at his feet, hanging on every word that he, it kind of drives her sister nuts a little bit, okay. But she's found Martha a lot of good things to do. Jesus or Mary, rather, has found the God thing. She's, she's found the presence of Christ, and that's what her soul hungers for, and that's where she's going to be. And Jesus actually kind of points out, Mary made a good choice. I mean, Jesus says right here in chapter 10, verse 42, Mary has chosen what is better. There's nothing better. There's nothing your soul needs more than to be close to Jesus. And so she finds Mary, her fullness in the Lord. And I want you to write this down in your outline. This is the first thing, no huge news flash from the text this morning, but here it is. It's that in Christ I have fullness. I have fullness. There in verse 10, you've been given fullness. You, you are, you're lacking nothing if you're in Jesus. Mary got it. We disciples get it. It's that I can have everything everything the world has to offer, but if I don't have Jesus, pardon my English, I ain't got nothing. 
I can check every box on accomplishment and on stuff that I have hoarded for myself. If I, a great relationship, if I don't have Jesus, I don't have anything. Without Jesus, the hope is gone. Without Jesus, all I've got are some fleeting expiration date pleasures and problems for my you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years here on earth. But with Jesus, I've got eternity. I've got eternity. I love that line. It's probably top five cheesiest lines in movie history, right? Jerry Maguire, right? You complete me. The truth is, guys, I mean, you know, I think most of you have got enough wear off your tires to know <laughs> no person is going to complete you. I hope you find a great husband, great wife, a great best friend, <laughs> great boss. No person, though, is going to create, and no thing is going to complete you. Because Jesus is the completeness of God. Only Jesus. We enjoy fullness in Him. And that's why I can have everything minus Jesus. And everything minus Jesus is nothing. On the other hand, and this is on your outline, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing. That's why Paul can say, look, I'm in a prison cell. I, I've been hungry. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. And I am content, he says in Philippians chapter 4, because I got Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is, is everything. We are complete in Jesus. Beyond that, in Christ, this is the second thing there on the outline, I have faith. And people need something or someone, rather, to believe in. And Jesus, I've got that. I can have faith. He says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him through your faith in the power of God. Jesus is our faith. Now, even David knew you had to believe in something. He was a catch-up believer, right? We're hardwired with this. We, we know that we need something. We need some, something is lacking we're hardwired to believe in something. It may be a good cause. It may be a good idea. It may be a good person. But truly, we weren't wired to put our faith in good things or even good people, but in the God thing, in, in, in the Christ. That's what our soul longs for. Our faith isn't in stuff. It isn't in people. It's in the Lord, and that allows us to live with, with like an ambient level of confidence, of security, no matter what is going on around us. We know that death won't have the last word. We know that trials and poverty, sickness won't have the last word. We know that injustice won't have the last word because Jesus is the word the Logos of God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He had the first word. He gets the last word. And so we connect to that. 
We put our faith in that. That becomes our story, the story of Jesus. Everybody, every single person will trust in something, will put their faith in something, and, and we're really all looking for what only the Lord can provide. We're longing for Him. And so there's this discussion. I won't get into a lot of detail about the discussion of circumcision, but an ancient Hebrew rite that marked a boy as belonging to the people of God not required anymore. Paul says now that marker for us is baptism, which represents something very special to believers. It represents the good news. In fact, the two rites that Christians around the world still celebrate, the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist and baptism, the two rites, they are all centered around that, the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I wrote this on your outline this morning. Here goes. Baptism is that moment where by faith a life is buried with Christ and raised with Christ. Baptism is essentially a reenactment of the gospel. The gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised by the power of God to a new life, a glorious life. And people have a lot of questions sometimes about baptism, what's it all about and everything, but that's what it is. It's a participation in the gospel, a participation personally in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of of Jesus. And there is nothing magical about it. The water is not particularly special that we have, although it's clean and warm, I promise you that. But it's not special water. It is an act of faith, a decision to give your life to Christ, to be immersed in all that is Jesus, covered up in that. That's why, for instance, I'm not here to pick on anybody, but I would that's, that's why it doesn't make sense for infants to be baptized. I mean, Paul talks about how it is an act of what? It's an act of faith. It's for a person that whatever their age, they, are, they have come to the belief that they are a desperate sinner, that they are lost. It's for someone who's able to hear the good news, and it sounds like good news, and they put their trust in it. So it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't make sense. For a baby, and then you know, people talk. Is there a difference between being immersed or being sprinkled? I mean, some churches do it this way, some people do it that way. I would put it. I would tell you this from what Paul says here, comparing it to a burial. Right? I've been to a lot of burials. I've been to a lot of funerals, and thank God, in the hour of in the hour that moment of burying that body, thankfully, I've never seen someone just grab a handful of dirt and sprinkle it. Okay, we're good here. That would be morbid and weird and grotesque. No, it's a burial. Jesus died and was buried. That's what's going on. It's a burial. And Paul will say the same things in the first verses of Romans chapter 6 as well. It's a burial. And so he says in verse 12, that you were buried with him in baptism. And raised 
with him through your faith in the power of God. So, I, hey, if you, were, if you were sprinkled, great, you know? If that's your story, great. Um, you don't have to overthink this. You don't need to study the Bible for 20 years, okay? Just go ahead and take the next step and get buried. Be baptized. Be immersed in Jesus. Celebrate that parent or whoever it was that made that decision to consecrate you to the Lord. Thank you. Now it's my turn by faith to be buried with Jesus. And you can do that today. Love to help you with that. The final thing I want to talk about, and this is really the sweet spot of the text this morning, in Christ I have forgiveness. Paul says there in verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us how many of our sins? All of our sins. There's not one hanging out there. There's not one that he forgot to forgive. There's not one that's written in small print there on your, on your criminal file with God. No, it's all taken care of. Now, this text around that, that's pretty easy to understand, but around this, it is a little bit tricky. It's a little bit complicated because, I mean, you've got this stuff about the written code and the obligations and the bill of indictment, and and it gets a little complicated for us because Paul is essentially using, for his readers, the Colossians, some first century jurisprudence, all right, Some, some first century legalese. This is how it worked. You went to courts, and there were charges. There would be a bill of indictment. Okay, this offense, this offense, you're being charged with this as well. That was your bill of indictment. If found guilty, they didn't have the internet to post it on those days, like the the county website or something. So it would literally be posted on your cross. So people walking by watching you suffer and die, they could see, oh, that's why. Those are the crimes of that criminal. And so Paul uses that imagery, and and traditionally there have been kind of two ways of looking at it. Um, One thing, the canceling of the code, the nailing of this, uh, the regulations onto the cross. Some people have thought, well, that's the Old Testament. Jesus was hammering the Old Testament above him on the cross. Jesus Jesus was crucifying with him the law of Moses. And I would say this, I'd say, you know, pretty much every Christian scholar is going to agree, look, you are not obligated as a Christian to follow all of those hundreds of laws in the Old Testament. Everybody pretty much agrees with that. The dietary laws, the laws about how much work you can do on a certain day and this and that and, how, and your clothes and all this kind of stuff. That, that We don't have to worry about that stuff anymore like circumcision, like he mentions there in the text. But I don't think that's what's going on here because, it, look, when you're reading a text, especially a text that's a little difficult, you always want to go from the text to the context, which in this case is that historical jurisprudence of the first century. And Paul is talking about the way a bill of indictment would be offered up in an ancient court. That list of specific crimes would be written down if you were found guilty, again, posted on your cross as you were being punished so people could see what you were paying the price for. Now... Without going into a lot more than this, Paul says, look, all that you were ever guilty of, every wrong that you ever committed, all of your sins, 
your spiritual bill of indictment, that has been, I love his phrase here, it has been taken away from you. It is no longer connected with you. It has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. It's his criminal indictment. It's why he was put to death. And so in this way, all of the judicial proceedings against you have been canceled. All of the charges have been dropped. Now, this is way more than an acquittal, okay? Sometimes we think about the cross, it's like I was acquitted. No, it's way more than that. An acquittal, like you go to trial and there's a jury and some evidence gets presented for you and some evidence gets presented against you and the jury kind of weighs this and you know it's an acquittal there's there's reasonable doubt or the preponderance of the evidence is on this side or maybe you did it but we just can't prove that you did it so we're going to go ahead and acquit you it's not that because of Jesus we're told the prosecution has nothing (laughs) Satan has Zero. He has no basis to level a charge, an accusation against you. And so you can write this on your outline. Now that I'm in Christ, my sin problem, past, present, future, it's been dealt with. And I love what Paul does here because obviously this is very personal. You know, my sin problem, my offenses have been dealt with. All of it. But he goes beyond the personal. He says, now, because of the cross, Satan and the powers of hell, those spiritual authorities that were out to destroy me, out to destroy you, now they've been flat out put to shame because of the cross. I imagine, I imagine Satan, like he's going to the courtroom with, his, with, all of his, with all of his information and research and evidence against me, and there would be plenty of it. His briefcase is just stuffed with all of, the, all of the crimes that I've committed, all the wrongs that I've done, and he shows up in the courtroom, and he's got his, his other Satan minions with him, and he opens up that briefcase, and it's empty. And God is sitting there. What do you got? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Your Honor. I, I don't have anything. I thought I, I was sure I did. God says, get out of here. And the prosecution, the enemy leaves ashamed, put to shame by the cross. This is from that text we read, but Eugene Peterson translated, translates it a little differently in Colossians 2. Listen to this in verses 13 to 15. He says, God brought you alive right along with Christ think of it all sins forgiven the slate wiped clean that old arrest arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross he stripped all the spiritual tyrants of the universe of their sham authority at the cross and he marched them naked through the streets he shamed them
during the great ketchup crisis of 2003, our sitter, Deborah, she looked everywhere. An exhaustive search for the elusive bottle of ketchup that my son promised was there. She never did find it. I want to tell you this, though. Don't feel like Don't feel like you've got to go on a search for Jesus, that he's going to be tricky to find. The reality in the story that we've read this morning is he is searching for you. He is searching for you. And he's here. And his arms are wide open. And he can't wait to accept you into his fold and to bury you with him in the riches of His grace. And so maybe this morning, that's the, that's the step to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, to confess your sin and allow Him to take that away and nail it to the cross. And to live in the abundance of His grace. You can be buried with Him in baptism this morning. Take care of that. Or maybe this morning you've got something that you need to bring before your Father before the Lord, a concern or a celebration. We would encourage you to deal with that, to maybe just pray over it with somebody that's sitting around you, small group or friend, or just the person that's next to you on the pew this morning, or, or come pray with me or one of our shepherds and just bring that before the Father who loves you, who gave His Son for you. Whatever you need to get done this morning between you and God, do that as we stand together and worship.